Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics and pop culture podcast coming to you from the not-so-solitary fortress that is WaitWhatPodcast.com. Make way for episode 207, with the second part of our multi-part Q&A session, in which Graham McMillan and I answer the cues posed to us by listeners on Twitter and Patreon. Over the next two hours, we discuss the Legion of Superheroes a lot, Jack Kirby a little, Manga for a Newbie, Sexuality in the Wolfman Perez run of Teen Titans, Tim Seeley and Tom King, Spawn Batman vs. Batman Spawn, Steve Ditko, The Flintstones, and much, much more. Show notes are available at waitwhatpodcast.com. We welcome your comments and questions at waitwhatpodcast at gmail.com, and we invite you to look out for us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Patreon. As always, we hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Jeff Lester! Graham McMillan, hello! Hello there, how are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. How about yourself? I am very warm, but other than that, I'm fine. Oh, is it is it a, is it a pot boiler there in the... For, for the second weekend in a row, it's above 100 degrees here from Portland. No. Um, and as you know, and I think we've said before in the podcast, um, I'm not home right now because construction's happening in our house. Um, and the house we're in is really cool during the day but for some reason like when it turns to evening becomes a heat trap (laughs) becomes like astoundingly hot right to the point where like you know right now i think it's 99 outside oh my god uh it was 104 earlier on today um and i think it might be 99 inside that's what i'm saying (laughs) wow wow uh it's it's been it's been kind of wacky weather-wise. It, it's been really, really warm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, last weekend, you will find this amusing, Jeff. Kate and I decided that we were going to go to the coast to get away from the heat. Oh, you know, you go to right. the coast. That's what people and, do. And, yeah. but, right? It's cooler. Mm-hmm. Much cooler, it turns out. Uh, the difference between Portland and the coast was, I shit you not... 35 degrees. What? Okay, that's <laughs> yeah. that's a little too much, maybe. And uh, the, it was completely overcast where we went. So I go in my shorts and my t-shirt because it's like 100 degrees when we leave. And we get there and it's literally like 60, 65 degrees or something, 70 degrees and overcast. Oh, God. And we get there we're like, what has happened? <laughs> The weather gotten worse in Portland, and like, what what's going on? And so we get back, uh, and the next day it's another like 100 degree or something. And I'm talking to someone in the store, and they're like, "Oh, this is better than yesterday, though. Yesterday was 105 degrees." Oh yeah, see, there you go. It's like you should have gone to the coast. The coast was great. <laughs> You're like, I nearly froze to death, but exactly. uh... the coast was so good. Yeah, yeah. So there, so there you go. See, I'm warm. Is is the short version, but. Again, listeners don't really give a shit, but you will. Uh, we're moving back to the house next weekend. Hey, that's fantastic. Wow. Okay. Great. Great, great, great. And the reason Jeff cares, not just for my mental well-being, but uh, our, we have basically a better internet at the other place. Mm-hmm. At our house, it's, it's easier for us to do these calls. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's, why, that's why Jeff is really happy. I am. Hey, how are you? Uh, I think I'm mostly okay. I'm mostly okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you what, we'll talk about that once we get through all these exciting questions that we have. We have a bunch. We have so many. We have so many. And they're also awesome. Some of them will go fast and some of them we won't. And some of them, of course, will get completely distracted and chase our tails barking for 
15 to 20 minutes. That's why people ask us questions, Jeff. That's right. That is true. So uh, do you want to start with Kevin Murrow? Because Kevin Murrow asks one of me and one of you. So why don't you read the one for me? Oh, okay. Uh, it's well known that Graham is not a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Is there a comic book movie, MCU, DC, or otherwise made since the dawn of the MCU so since 2008, that you love or at least like, and what does it do right that MCU movies largely don't? This is primarily for Graham, but Jeff, please feel free to chime in as well. Uh, I am on record as actually liking Man of Steel, <laughs> which I think is me and maybe one other person in the entire world. Oh, actually, there are two other people. I know I, both Sean and Tucker, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I think Man of Steel is, is a, a really... Uh, interesting and also good film. I, I think it does, I think it's beautifully shot and I think it does lots of interesting things with the genre. I, I like Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh. Uh, I, I know. I, appalling, right? Uh, this might be one of the, it might be like Avengers where I thought I liked it and then I saw it again and I was like, oh no. Right. Because right. I, I really thought I liked Avengers until I saw it for a second time. <laughs> and then I was like, this is terrible. What? No. <laughs> I, I like Winter Soldier. I like Captain America Winter Soldier. Oh, yeah. You've said you liked Winter Soldier. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's good. Well, just out of curiosity, to, to sift that a little more finely, do you – so what – what do those films, because I assume it won't be the same answer for e each of the three, but what do those three have that like a lot of the MCU movies don't, do you think? Uh, they all, to some degree, move away from the, I find the MCU movies as a, like in, as a model, mm -hmm. um, kind of glib mm -hmm. and kind of, uh, empty. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they, they do exactly what you want them to do, but they don't do anything else. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, they stay very within their model, and ultimately their model is something that is not that interesting when you've seen, you know, for example, 13 of the films. Right. You know? And it's it's totally working for them, so I'm not criticizing them for it. Mm -hmm. But I'd rather see an interesting failure, Man of Steel, mm -hmm. than, uh, than a successful, like, you know, lots of people like Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. And I'm me, one of those people. Yeah. And, but for me, Ant-Man is like, is, is a, is a really well done Marvel movie. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't do anything beyond that. Hmm. You know? And it's not like Ant-Man's a bad film. It just doesn't do anything. Like, it, it, I, I know everything it's going to do. Like, Civil War is, is fine. It does everything you want it to do. But by this point, we've seen 13 of these films. We know all their moves. You know? So, so Man of Steel and, and Winter Soldier as well. I think Winter Soldier does do things that you don't expect it to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, e even just in terms of tone. Yeah. You know, Winter, Winter Soldier had, when it came out, that wasn't immediately followed by like another film, like in the gap before the next film. Mm -hmm. Winter Soldier seemed as if it would actually going to, it was actually going to make a difference. Like there was going, they were going to really change the formula. You know, shit, they've got rid of shields and they've released all the secrets. Mm -hmm. Like that, that is a status quo change until you see the next film and they're like, but it's all fine. Right. We, you know, we don't have shields anymore. We've got the Avengers shield thing, you mm -hmm. know, which is, is totally different. Definitely. And all those secrets that were revealed. Yeah. That, that made all the difference. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's, yeah, they, 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 they posited a really interesting outcome mm -hmm. and then veered away from it immediately mm -hmm. in the next film. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I just, uh, 
I don't know. Like, I think, I think if Ant Man had been funnier, because mm-hmm. uh, I think ultimately that's what I like about Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, uh, and also Guardians of the Galaxy has a better soundtrack, and I'm a sucker for soundtrack. I'm, I'm on record as saying I like Man from Uncle, and a large proportion of that is because I love the soundtrack. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I actually thought Ant Man's. Ant-Man's funny enough for me, but I do agree that, that the, what makes it and Guardians stand out at least, I don't know, honestly, I found myself, Guardians was a little underwhelming because there wasn't enough of what I wanted, you know, they, yeah, yeah. I, I'll be, I, I think for you especially because you have a real affinity for a lot of the source material. You know, but by which I mean like cosmic Marvel. Sure, sure. Like I love Star Lord comics, right? But, but like the 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 if if Guardians is meant to be like the cosmic Marvel movie, mm-hmm. like you love the Starlin stuff, which isn't really represented in those films. No, it's not. I I wasn't exp- honestly. Part of me is like I think I, you know, the Guardians had a great trailer, uh, and it really was like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be fun. And the thing is, is that it wasn't, it was fun, but it, it wasn't fun enough. It wasn't humorous. It was, it was, it was, it was a little bit lazy. Like, but because it was such a huge change from that Marvel template, it felt really fresh, you know? And, but it's true because of the Guardians trailer made it look edgier than the film was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that the Guardians trailer, just because the punchline was basically like, what a bunch of assholes, mm-hmm. made it look like it was going to be an edgier film than it ultimately is. Mm-hmm. Because if the trailer is what a bunch of assholes, the, movies are, the movie is, but they're cuddly assholes who are good guys, really. <laughs> well, I, I, that, which could be, which, I mean, that could be fine. I think ultimately what it well, just boils down to. Again, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just, no. it's not what it's advertising. Well, I, I mean, I think that I would have been a little more annoyed if it had been a little, I was okay with, here's the thing. I'm okay with cuddly assholes. It's just, which is, there's a tagline. But I, I think that, uh, I, I just, for me, it was like, it was fun. It wasn't fun enough. Ant-Man was uh, just amazingly well cast and was more fun than I expected. Like, I was not expecting it to be as enjoyable as it was. So it had that underdog thing that kind of, that kind of you know, snuck in there. Plus, I'm sorry, Michael Pena, you know, that guy was I, Here's the thing. I, I, don't, I don't get it. Like, I thought he was fun, but I didn't. I don't get why was like, oh, my God, Michael Pena. I, I just don't understand. Wow. Part of the problem is... I saw Ant-Man really late, mm-hmm. and so I'd been through the backlash and then the backlash to the backlash. Right. So by the time I saw it, I had the Ant-Man surprisingly good and the, oh my god, Michael Pena is amazing. Mm-hmm. And when you go in with those expectations, as opposed to with yours, with the underdog, yeah. you really are expecting a much better film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. But, uh yeah, so for me, I don't know. I think, I think... Man, I think I I believe that honestly the audiences well, and this was the success of Deadpool. Audiences want a more fun superhero movie. They mm-hmm. really do. Deadpool was entirely enjoyable. It was very everything was staged very well. It was a it was it was pretty enjoyable top to bottom. It wasn't necessarily especially original, 
and there were times where I think the humor itself also did get kind of lazy, but the parts that were really clever and fun, it was like, that was a thoroughly fun time. I think people want that. I think people really want the fun with their superheroes now tremendously. I think, I think that's, it's clear that the reception to the Suicide Squad trailer was like, yeah, this is what we want because we want something that's, you know, goofy and it can be a little dark, but you know, it's, it's kind of weird. Honestly, if, if, uh, you know, somebody was, someone was quote unquote smart, they, I think that there, there is a, it kind of reminds me of the way that some of the early image comics were irreverent in their kind of very meatheaded way. Well, yeah, there, there's definitely, and I think Deadpool really points towards this. There's an appetite out there for a dumb, fun superhero movie. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that, uh, I think it'll be curious to see if they get that in time. I don't think that they will. I mean, I honestly feel who, like... Who, who do you think is going to do it? Well, I think uh, arguably you can say that they did it with Deadpool. My hope is, is that Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is actually going to up the silliness more like well, you do have Kurt Russell playing Eagle with a Living Planet. Yeah, I mean, right. That's that is actually a good sign. Yeah, you know, little things like that that are just like what. So I, I'm hopeful for that. Uh, I just I feel like, but I feel like a lot of the other stuff is so semi set in stone. I think it's going to be very really hard for the DC movies to to pivot as much as they would like it sounds like all the reports that you hear about them trying to um sort of lighten the justice league material i think it's it's going to come off as a little more superficial it's not going to end up being as, as I, I heavily wedded best, to the material i think the best justice league can come up with tone wise is is a marvel movie mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know where you have the quips, but it is essentially not a humorless film. Yeah. But a film that takes itself very seriously. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, weirdly, I mean, this is, mm-hmm. we're talking a film that's not coming out until 2019 yet. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think Shazam has the potential to be a good, dumb, fun film. It almost certainly won't because it's a Warner Brothers movie. Yeah. We'll see. But, but then again, like it's, it's Dwayne Johnson producing. It's not any of the, 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 the team who are currently on the Warner Brothers films. Oh yeah, man. So, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Could be, could be right. If he, if Doc Savage ends up being a huge hit. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm terrified of it, Doc Savage. Well, you, and again, you saw, you saw Rock t- talking about how it's going to be like such a great movie because there's such a hilarious, amazing spin that that yeah, Shane Black and, is and, putting and on I, it. Yeah, and I heard, and I heard Shane Black talking about it on, uh, I think the Nerdist Writers. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And because I heard that first, and I remember just being like, "Oh no! Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh no! Oh no! That's a terrible idea." <laughs> like that's it, here's the thing: it's not actually a terrible idea. It's just a terrible idea for Doc Savage. It is a terrible idea for Doc Savage, but I it's know. not a bad idea. We should explain what the idea is for people who have no idea what we're talking about. Yes. The Doc Savage spin is uh, Doc Savage. You may or may not know is the character who's basically raised to be the perfect human. He is not superhuman, but he can just do everything really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Shane Black spin for the movie he's writing for Dwayne Johnson is he can do everything really well, except he's completely 
non-socialized. And so he makes lots of social faux pas, everyone. Right. Waka, waka, waka. Yeah. Which is just, oh, it just, it sounds embarrassing already. Yeah. You know, it just seems like, and also, if we're going to get anal, mm-hmm. if Doc Savage has been trained to be, to do everything well, so socialization is part of that. Yes. Yeah. You like, you can't that. be the world's best detective. Right. I do not know how people act. Yeah. Don't, and not understand human behavior. Well put, Graham. Well put. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. So Kevin has a second question. Yes. Which is largely for Jeff. Mm-hmm. But if Graham has any input, please feel free. I actually don't. I'm really looking forward to your answer in this one, Jeff. <laughs> I find manga largely impenetrable, but I want to give it a fair shake. What is it that appeals to you about the form, and what would you recommend for a newbie who finds it hard to get past the cartoony expressions and overall exaggerated nature of what little I've glimpsed? Actually, I do have an opinion. Can I say my opinion first, and then you can tell me why Absolutely. I'm wrong? Absolutely. No, yeah. Um, planets. Uh, yes. Yes. Which I feel is, is, if anything, overly understated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As opposed to cartoony expressions and overall exaggeration. I think, I think Planets is, is very understated. Um, and depending on your interest in science fiction, maybe exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, so there's, there's two things that, that I have to split out. One of the things is, is that it's actually kind of very hard for me to answer because at a certain point, um, <clears throat> the cartoony expressions and the overall exaggerated nature are, are were hurdles for me. And once I came to actually love them, they, you know, it, it makes all the difference. Uh, I remember uh, there was a Tezuka show at the Asian Art Museum, which I actually think uh, Ian Brill and I went to uh, way back when. And um, there was a quote in either by one of the panels, you know, like put on the wall or in sure, the yeah. program book where he said something along the lines of manga is, if it's not absurd, it's not manga, you know, like he's very aware it's, you know, so he does, he does an amazing series, like something like blackjack where, you know, he's uh blackjack is this professional surgeon for hire, you know, and, you would think that, you know, a freelance surgeon for the, the criminal and the, the mega elite would be sort of a, a, you know, sort of weirdly glamorous take. But then Tezuka, and Tezuka's a trained surgeon, you know, doctor. So he's, he's going to know all sorts of interesting medical stuff. But, you know, like two episodes in even, it's like ghost fetuses and like stuff that's completely, completely insane. And yeah. that's even before you get to Blackjack's companion, who's essentially the ghost fetus has taken over the body of a young, uh, I want to say the body of a young girl. She's like Pinocchio. She's, she's, it's like a female mannequin, you sure. know, who's like a five-year-old girl. And, and I mean, it just doesn't get more ridiculous than that. And that's clearly the way that he there's the the exaggerated nature of manga is something that uh, is is super appealing to me. That said, as Graham pointed out, it's not the it's it's not the be all and end all. I mean, it's sort of I don't know how you can describe it. The extent to which 
there will be traces of sort of absurdity, like whether that's the cartoony ex- uh, expressions or, or an overall exaggerated nature. But I guess if you can think of those as, once you learn to think of them as really no more than when someone in a comic, you know, has a word balloon and the word balloon spiky and inside the word balloon are like triple exclamation points, you know? Yeah. Well, although, again, that strikes me as more of a manga thing than a Western comics thing. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I suppose it's, it's true. Uh, but I'll, to sort of jump off what you're saying. Yeah. And arguably get to the point before you, which I, I like to do. You know that. Yes. Um, Western comics are just as exaggerated. It's just that we're used to it. And that's, that's what I was going for. Yeah. I apparently picked the, the wrong example there for you. So you managed to <laughs> scoop me, Graham McMillan. But yeah, exactly what I was going for. Now, that being said, there is, there's a wide source of, of, of manga that's created a lot of what we see in the American marketplace is usually stuff that's, that is for the kids market and by its nature ends up being super exaggerated. You can see stuff that may seem silly or insane to you, but you know, but will not have necessarily those same exaggerations. I was going to mention, uh, uh, is it Ikigami? Ikigami, The Ultimate Limit, which is a series that I think is coming out uh, by Viz. Um, it's written and illustrated by Motoro Mas. And uh, it's about, it's sort of a dystopian future where citizens between the ages of 18 to 24 are randomly selected to die for the good of the nation. And the citizens are given a 24-hour notification of their impending death. And... Uh, the idea being that the notifications help them sort of try and have a chance to set their life right before before they're killed and uh there's it's beautifully sort of realistically rendered the stories themselves i don't know the first volume i found a, a little too melodramatic and soppy but some people kind of adore it and certainly it gets a long ways away as Graham mentioned planets which is you know, a, a future, um, you know, space janitor (laughs) organization operation around, you know, orbiting around earth, cleaning up debris and stuff is, is really like, well, like the Japanese are go. There's an as certain aspects of the adult market where the hard science fiction is way more interesting and satisfying to, to a lot of people. Uh, I'm a big fan of GoGo13 and Lone Wolf and Cub. Again, those things are rampantly ridiculous, but are usually for the most part done with the exaggeration is in what happens. You're not going to see as much of the wacky eyes and people, you know, their limbs flying in nine directions or, you know, you know. There will be many absurd, insane things that happen to GoGo13, but he won't see a woman's panties and suddenly like blood squirting out his nose. So, you know, there's a there's a lot out there. I mean, honestly, if you're really interested, Kevin, you know, I, I, I would say if you end up getting Comixology Unlimited, you're going to be able to look at at the very least the first four volumes of like Lone Wolf and Cub. And of course, you know, some of that's in there. It's like if the, if the Shonen young boy stuff doesn't actually appeal to you, you know, you, you just have to dig a little deeper and you'll find stuff that, 
hopefully will fill the bill. But honestly, what I found was the most satisfying for me was actually jumping into genres that are underrepresented in American comics and therefore end up being goofier. So honestly, at first, the sort of traditional shonen genre stuff of like, I don't know, like, um, uh, what was it? King of Go or whatever, where it's like a kid who learns to become a Go champion is with a ghost tutoring him. Like, you know, just young adult stuff that you don't necessarily see. Romance stuff, you know, Love Hina, I think was where I really actually got the bitten by the bug. And I mean, that, that is an absolutely ridiculous, um, it's all exaggeration. But in terms of a marketplace, the, the comics marketplace, it's hard to find a good romantic comedy. So, you know, I guess it really depends. You've got to figure out what your itch is, I suppose, and then maybe do a little bit of research to see what you can find to, to have that work for you. So uh, There's a couple of things that I'm – Jeff, I'm surprised you didn't mention. Uh well, only one I'm surprised you didn't mention, but the other is the book that got me into manga as far as I'm into manga, the book that made me go, oh, I'm really going to give this manga thing a shake. Mm. Uh, Death, Note, Death Note was the one for me, and that was because of you. Right, right. You were the one that really pushed Death Note on me, and it, it totally worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and part of it is, it's unlike anything in, in Western comics. Yeah. There's there's nothing in Western comics that's like Death Note. Yeah. Death Note is... is uh, is kind of like, uh, what if someone did like an early 90s vertical comic as a romp? Yeah, right. Uh, right. which is, is, is genuinely fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, in large part because, again, the exaggeration is a problem for you. So, so that it might not work, but it is such an overblown melodramatic comic. Death Note right. is great for that. Yeah. Um, Again, flipping away from that, and the one I'm surprised you didn't mention is Pluto. Yes, I knew you were going to – I was like, as soon as you said, I can't believe you didn't mention it, I'm like, uh, he's going to talk about Pluto. <laughs> Pl- well, again, Pluto was you and David Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you like, oh, no, you have to read Pluto. You have to read Pluto. It's 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 an astounding piece of comics, and it is. Mm-hmm. Pluto mm-hmm. is an astounding piece of comics. Yeah. Well, and that that is it. I think, I think that everything that um... – uh, 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 blocking it that Naoki Urasawa does, has done. Like, it's kind of a shame. Monsters, like, 34 volumes, Kevin, and there's no, there's, n- how do I put it? There's not, the exaggeration of it is, like, if you can read Will Eisner comics, you can totally read Monster, because Monster is kind of like, it's kind of like if Will Eisner had done The Fugitive, you know, is mm-hmm. basically the best I- way that I could say it. But, Which is really funny because part of me was like, yeah, but Will Eisner is much more exaggerated than what you get in today's comics. No, it's totally like, true. Like, read the spirit and you're like, yeah, that's, there's stuff there that just wouldn't fly with today's audiences. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that, that as soon as I said that, I'm like, eh. but yeah, no, uh, but, absolutely. But again, like, it's, it's totally true. Like, it, you know, his, his stuff is great. Yeah. yeah so, yeah, I, I'd, depending on how you feel about science fiction, I'd recommend Planets and Pluto. Probably Pluto first, actually. Yeah, I think I think Pluto's a is a good shot. Um, you know, the first I still I've still got him on the shelf. I'm like someday I'm gonna read all of 20th Century Boys instead of whichever I, volume yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I, fell I can't even tell you where I dropped off of that. I, yeah, I, and I, it's not that I didn't like it. I just literally dropped off. Yeah. you know, it's one of those between volumes. I forgot a volume came out, and then all of a sudden it's a year later, and I'm like, oh, I couldn't even tell you the last one I read. Right. Where do I start? What do I do? So yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, 
Uh, and I think it's similar with 2080 as well. Like when you make a break and something comes out that often. Yeah. You can get really behind and just feel like, oh, fuck it. Right. Yeah. It's one of those things where your completist mentality can actually work against you. As I should yeah. know. So, uh, should we move on to Mr. Charles Foreman? Sure. Uh, number one question from him, Spawn Batman or Batman Spawn? I love that question. It's totally Spawn Batman for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've not read either. So you, what? Oh, Graham. Well, it makes sense. Uh, but. My interest in Spawn is, uh, I have read, I think, three Spawn comics mm-hmm. in, in total. Uh, I've read the Dave Sim issue. I read the Alan Moore issue. That actually, I might only have read two Spawn comics. <laughs> um, and neither of those, and between that and my general disinterest in Todd McFarlane's art, uh, I had literally no desire to read any further. Yeah. Uh, for those listening, I know that, of course, Chuck knows the difference, but uh, Spawn Batman is written by Frank Miller and drawn by Todd McFarlane and is absolutely uh ridiculous it is very much a precursor to miller's take uh all-star batman take on batman uh batman spawn war devil uh is by doug monick uh chuck dixon yeah Uh, i i knew chuck dixon was in there it isn't close johnson drawing uh, it's Alan. Or is it Inc? Uh, you know, it says they've got Alan Grant on here and Claus Jansen on the title. Is it Claus Jansen did all the art and then he, he must have? And it'll, it'll have been Munch and, and Dixon and Grant writing. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's it it's one of those things where, um, like when I read Spawn Batman, I'm like, oh man, I really want something one where they take the character seriously, and unfortunately, that's what then ends up happening. <laughs> that's what you got. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, that's not that really doesn't do the trick for me. Other, I mean, Claus Jensen does draw a great Batman, but um, but yeah, it just I don't know. It's one of those deals. Neither of them really quite quite fit the bill for me. But I have to say, there's stuff in Spawn Batman. That both amused me, and there's a great sequence where Miller is Batman's like on the back of I want to say it's a rocket, but it's probably one of those half robot dudes like Overkill or I God, I can't even remember the name of that one dude. That, Wasn't he called Overt Kill? Maybe it was Overt like, Kill. Am I imagining that that he was called Overt Kill? Yeah, that probably that's probably right. I mean, part of me is like. Yeah, wait. And then I was like, what, what's the name of the Rob Liefeld spawn one? Wasn't that overt kill? Anyway, it doesn't. Overt? Oh, hang on. I'm looking him up. Oh, I knew overt that. Overt kill is a cybernetic assassin called Nicholas Roca. All right. Does he, is he very green? Is he yes, he's very green. Yeah, that's him. That is, for Spirits was in spawn six. Yeah, he, he pops up pretty early. So, so I think Batman's like, on the back of it's either a nuclear missile or it's a nuclear overt kill and he's like you know pried open the control switch and he's like p- pulling wires inside and Miller's rhapsodizing about how th- this is the guy who like has the fingers of like a gifted surgeon and the Brit- you know he could have been a <laughs> he could have been Mozart he could have been Einstein he but you know instead he's Batman and I I I really do love that that sort of level <laughs> of just pure rhapsodic, and of course, then like you know, three pages later, like Batman's talking about farts or something. So it's just kind of an amazing, an amazing book. That's the one okay. that's memorable. Before we get on to question two, I have to ask: Were you a Spawn fan? 
Did you read Spawn? Oh, I, I think I've talked about this a couple of times. I, read... I, I, I'm clearly playing this from my mind. You, you, how long did you stay on Spawn? Oh, not very long at all. I kept coming back. See, so here's the thing. Spawn is such, is so much Rob Liefeld's take, uh, Rob Liefeld, fuck. Such, such Todd McFarlane's attempt to do like the comics that he dug and what he dug were clearly Starlin comics. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a very Starlin-esque kind of book in that Spawn is this guy who died, has the opportunity, is basically given the chance to come back to life. But his, his, his suit is actually a parasite and a hell spawn, and he only has so much energy left, and he chooses to fight the devil rather than help him. But there's the, you know, heaven and hell are both kind of relatively... A- ambiguous figure is it's it's not the traditional manichaean struggle so it's very much mcfarlane trying to do the stuff that is all varying levels of what starlin did you know this cosmic level with a with a lot of um you know a a smattering of rudimentary philosophy and and and, uh, a lot of crouching and groaning um the problem is is that mcfarlane is an excruciatingly boring storyteller so you can want read issues of that comic book and just want to die because I I loved McFarlane's art when he did Hulk. Oh yeah, right. I really did, mm-hmm. and almost everything he has done subsequently, I have found repellent. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and I don't know what happened. Like it's clearly me. No, no, I don't I think could... so. I mean, well, it depends. I, it, it really depends. I don't think cause... he changed that much. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I really don't think he changed that much as an artist. I just really dug specifically the way he drew the Hulk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. so, I mean, I, I think for me it's just very much a case of there's it, – he's it, it's just a very boring thing. But I was so kind of down with this idea of where some of this stuff was going and the fact that McFarlane was like, okay, I'll give these writers a lot of money and sort of learn – Learn how they do what they do and, and see what they bring to it. And, he, and true to the form, you know, I mean, Miller kind of did a lark. Sim did heavy commentary. Uh, you know, Moore did a sort of very clever riff on like an EC story. And both he and Gaiman brought so much to the mythology in their two issues that um that McFarlane went on to use the characters and the concepts for that as like for hundreds of issues. Yeah, and they yeah. they were just they were very dull. So yeah, so I'm so I'm down and I'm down with I wanted to like that book so much and I never <laughs> Yes, I, I know ever, what you're saying. ever did. So yeah. I, I also realized that I did read the game in issues, so I have read three issues. Well. Oh see, there you go. There there I See, there you go, Graham. So exactly, uh, I'm a spawn fan. Clearly. You are clearly. Uh, Question number two, Jeff. Yes, <laughs> which you should read, but you should try to read like Jerry Seinfeld. Apparently, <laughs> no, I really want to do to do it with that though. What's the deal with all these comic books coming out every week? Uh, that's as close as I can. I feel like we should get in a car and go and have coffee. <laughs> Yeah, I actually be... really like that show. I I'm, used to like I'm, that show, I'm, and then uh, I learned to hate that show. No, I'm a big fan still of um, comedians in cars getting coffee. Yeah. Um, what is the deal with all these comic books coming out every week? I I don't know. 
I thought that that was hilarious. I think that's a hilarious question. I hope that Chuck is, I'm sure, not really pressing for a serious answer for either of those. But there, There's a bunch of them. I'll tell you that much. Boy, that's for sure. That's for sure. One of them Boy. being Chuck Foreman, Revenger and the, and the Fog, uh, issue three just came out, I want to say, this last week. And I got I, it. I, and I'm behind then. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so as uh, well. It's a very strange little book. Tom Bondurant. Mm-hmm. says, DC Warners are putting out an animated version of the Judas Contract in which a spunky 16-year-old superheroine is, spoilers, revealed to be a stone-cold sociopath who hates the Teen Titans, is probably sleeping with the much older Deathstroke the Terminator, probably my butts. I mean, yes. short of actually showing them having sex. I, I, that's y- like, that's how they showed people having sex back in the exactly. 80s comics. Uh, I, anyway, she also dies after literally after being literally buried by her own rage-spawned freakout. I still have a lot of affection for TJC, especially in light, especially in the context of New Teen Titans generally. But A, does it seem that problematic to you? And B, what changes, if any, do you expect the adaptation to make? Based on the Killing Joke animated adaptation, I expect to see full penetration... <laughs> And then I expect to see Bruce Tim saying, I, I, I don't know what I, I never liked the story anyway. Brian Azzarello made me do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I expect to see everyone. Uh, I mean, obviously they're going to cut out the, the, they're either going to make her older or they're going to cut out the fact that she's fucking Deathstroke. Yeah, and I think, I think that's all they're going to change about the story. I don't think they're going to change anything else. Well, I, you know, I have to tell you one of the things, not that I've been following this very closely, but the Judas Contract is a story that I remember incredibly fondly because that was that was one of the DC books that I read and loved, as we've talked about on other podcasts. What really helped about the Judas Contract was that Tara was there for a dozen issues before the Judas contract comes, you know? So, so it seems to me, I don't know really how they would do it and have anything like the same level of effect. Not that I've been paying attention. If they've done three previous new teen Titans. They've not. not. Yeah. So I'm sort of like, it's going to introduce these characters. It's not, they're going to do something that's going to try and make the character seem like uh, do something that will, will move our hearts maybe with some scene with her in Changeling. And then you're supposed to be shocked by the reveal, but it's, but it's not going to mean anything if you're in a in a adaptation where you have to introduce the characters and, and there's no, it just, it's, it's, it does, it's not going to have the same, effect so part of me is like i think it's sort of silly i mean i just hope uh, you know the only way you could do it is to take the current incarnation of teen titans go and then just go incredibly (laughs) dark and disturbing with that and have it be one of those characters you know then that no one would see that coming and that would definitely traumatize both adults and uh kids who uh convince their parents to rent that so I think that might be kind of interesting. But other than that, it's just, you know, I mean, it's, God help me. Part of me is like, it. it's it's how Warner Brothers is using very low-line synergy to prop up both, in theory, the actual Judas Contract graphic novel and, in actuality, the, the Warner Brothers animation department. So, yeah. I think. Yeah, that yeah, it's 
I don't know. Do you have any feelings about the Killing Joke thing, which I feel this is sort of touching on? Well, I, I think we both complained about that one a lot because I think that news came out. That was the only. Oh, that was when we were here. That was when you were here, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. right. We were talking about that. So part of me is. Like, um, hmm. uh, so it's so, okay. Let's pivot to Tom's earlier part of the question. Uh, is the Judas contract problematic to you? I feel like we covered this when I was rereading it. Yeah. But it, it super is problematic to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, I feel, I can't believe they got away with it then. And I, I, I'm like, I, I would be perfectly okay with the fact that they, you can't get away with that now. Cause I also don't think she was 16 in the comic. I think she's younger. Oh, uh, I don't, I don't, see, this is one of those weird I mean, it's, things. it's super vague, but I have the strangest feeling she's like 15 or 14. And, and they totally cl- go the like cliched femme fatale mm-hmm. route with her, mm-hmm. which on the one hand is genuinely disturbing, and and you buy that she is a disturbed character when they do that with her, but it's also it's a bit too far, I think. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 you know, the weird part is in my brain when that's the you know the scene of them in bed or a po- you know post where it's very clear they've gone to bed. Um, everything that you, the way that you see Tara, I mean, part of it is the way that uh, George Perez is drawing everything, but it's like, suddenly she's wearing ruse on her cheeks. She's smoking. Um, and I she's just lingerie, right? She's, she's wearing like the silken robe or something like that. And for whatever reason in my brain, I was like, Oh, okay. She was always like, 19 pretending to be 16 or 15 like there's that kind of thing of like she's just maybe because they also started playing up her feel like her buck teeth or whatever that was just like they're trying they're i just always bought into this thing of she's you made it less problematic i think like, she just pretended to be younger i did it's legal yeah she totally is she totally is i mean there's still a discrepancy there but it's very clear that she's got but other than that no i don't i don't really have a a problem with any of that it one of the things that actually does help is at the time that it was wolfman's wolfman and perez's teen titans had a handful of other characters, other female characters, I should say. You know what yeah. I mean? Like there was a Although... spectrum of representation there that I think was kind of was good. And frankly, there was a spectrum of representation romantically and sexually. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. Starfire was Although, sexually active. Really, yeah. really, when you read it back now, um, a lot of that stuff feels problematic to me. Okay, how so? No, it, it, because you've got, because uh, your spectrum is Starfire, who everyone, with the exception of Donna and Dick, consider a bimbo, who is basically like, yes, I am so free. She's the Storm cliche from X-Men. Mm-hmm. I am so free with my body. I am so happy that everyone is looking at me when I am naked. I have no problems with this. Right. You have... Donna, who gets into the creepy relationship with uh, Terry Long, well, which which I, they try and play as uncreepily as possible, and I don't think it's intended to be creepy. I think it's intended to be true love. Mm-hmm. But there is just something super weird about... Because he's, like, close to being twice her age, mm-hmm. and he's got a kid, and he's divorced. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And there's just something super weird. Because isn't he, like, actually her professor or something at some point? I think so. I think so. But, you I- know, and, there, and that's just... And I think more than anything, that's either Wolfman or Perez, like, living out their fantasy. Oh, yeah. The- not even, like, their creepy sex fantasy as much as genuinely, like, their romantic fantasy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Uh, but, but I also just, think... It's still creepy to me. I think... Uh, but and I- so you have Raven being the only one who is not in some form, a male fantasy figure. Well, okay, but... Okay, apart from I mean, the I, fact I, I that... Totally, I totally get that the, there is diversity within that. Mm-hmm. But you have, like, four female characters in the book, three of whom are different flavors of male fantasy. Uh, I What I want to point out is, and this could be... I could be mistaken as far as the Judas contract goes, but a lot of the Terry Long stuff, I want to say is either just starting out then or doesn't happen until... Oh, yeah, after. sorry. I, I wasn't meaning to, uh, Judas Contract specifically. I was meaning, like, Wolfman and Perez's Teen Titans. Oh, I general. see. Okay. Because I was very much thinking of, by the time when Terra sort of hits with the Judas Contract, what I meant very specifically is is there's several oh, different there, there types are of women. I get yeah, and, and, and at that point, they are there's different levels of, like, it's not a sexuality is bad because we've seen a... a good sexual based relationship there's you know at that pre terry lang which is blah or long it's uh donna is actually incredibly self-sufficient and driven for her you know to find out her past raven is incredibly troubled and you know has that sort of it there's that weird doomed romance angle with her and wally west and one of the things that's pretty that I remember liking about it was, is that it didn't, it was, it was closer to being like a real life frustrated romance in that he was interested in her, figured it was impossible, gave up and moved on with a certain amount of mumbling, but not, but there was never any sort of, I don't know. There was just one of the things that what, that is true about the teen Titans. And I'll say that about, the relationships with the women characters, even frankly, the way that some of the men are posited is it's barely one step beyond cliche, Mm -hmm. but back then for people just to move that extra step. Well, sure. It it was, it was revolutionary. Like I, it's, you look at the, their drug stories, Mm -hmm. which today just look, you know, amazingly simplistic and offensive. Yeah. But back then, we're genuinely groundbreaking. Yeah. You know, or the, or the runaway story. They have the, the issue yes. with the runaways. Mm-hmm. And that seemed, again, looking at it today, you're like, what is the sub Chris Claremont's cloak and dagger bullshit? Right. But at the time was unlike anything else that you would get in, in mainstream comics. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I don't know. So for myself, no, I'm afraid I don't really find that stuff problematic, but I also have a big old stack, digital stack of Teen Titans that I have been meaning to sit down and read that I haven't gotten around to yet, and we'll see. I really look forward to you reading it and then seeing if you change your mind. And that's not, like, baiting. I'm super curious because yeah. I was surprised by how much it stood out to me when I read it. Like, I want to say this past year at some point, I got mm-hmm. the books at the library. And I was like, huh, I didn't expect this, because I'd read them before. And I didn't expect to be like, 
noticing it as much, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, so I'd be very curious what happens when you read it. Mad Miller asks, uh, already asked one of my questions on Twitter, so here's my second. You two are starting a cross-gen-esque company dealing in popular but non-superhero genres. So he doesn't say if we're starting a compound in Florida, sadly. Uh, <laughs> what two writer, artist teams or cartoonists would you recruit and what genre do you put them on? I really wish I had thought of this one out. This is one of those that I remember like, oh, I got to come back to this one and be all like, oh, I will blankety McBlank. Um, uh, Becky Cloonan uh, and Becky as as artist. And who was writer? I don't know who's writer, but I want them to do a a romance comic. Hmm. I want Becky to illustrate a romance comic, and I really like a gothic romance comic. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what you said. That I, it, yeah. it definitely. Uh, um, and I can't think who Margaret Bennett. I put Margaret Bennett on it. Oh, because because I can imagine her writing the shit out of that. Um, and uh, I'm really tempted to just be sneaky and be, say, oh, Brandon Graham on science fiction. Right. Which I think we played that card last episode. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, it's true. There is that. I mean, some of the stuff that is there that I would put there are places where you can kind of see some of those people already doing things. Already. Al Ewing and Disraeli on high school drama. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, because of course, part of me is like, yeah, what are those genres? I mean, I would say like that's the that's the kind of the great thing about it wasn't the at the forefront of Images Publishing line, but if I said like, yeah, I would do cross gen, and for the YA, I would have Alex DeCampi writing and Carlos Speed McNeil drawing, and it's like. Thanks. You kind of already have that. Exactly. You know, no mercy. It's called no exit. <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it no exit or is it no mercy or is it no? Oh, it's no mercy. It's totally no mercy. You're right. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm like. I'm like. You're right. Yes. I'm very wrong. Sartre's right. play. But you know, or, or part of me is like, yeah, you want Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips doing your crime comic, you know? And again, that's something that that I'm very happy to say that we already have. Uh, but I mean, there are things I would love to actually have Brandon Graham do the barbarian romance comic, you know, that is always popping up in the backgrounds of his like multiple warhead comics and stuff like that. I would actually really like to see him do, I mean, he kind of already did. I mean, profit was so many different things, but I always loved the space Conan stuff, you know, the most I would, I would love to see him do like some sort of crazy barbarian thing. You know, with kind of like a weirdo deep mythos. But I, of course, part of me is like, I don't feel like that's much of a genre unless you can figure out a way to spin it. One thing. Well, Sartre and Sartre is a genre. Yeah, I guess I, it's, I'm not sure. Well, I, I'm thinking of today's genres that are popular. You know what I mean? So it's like at that point, it then gets closer to like, you'd have to pitch it as the, Game of Thrones esque kind of thing, yeah, but exactly. fuck that, I, you know. Conan meets Game of Thrones, right? Exactly. How you do something like that? Honestly, you know, somebody who I thought did a surprisingly good job of just cranking out like enjoyable non superhero genre books is uh, Chuck Dixon. Chuck Dixon for Cross Gen did some stuff that I really, really enjoyed, like Way of the Rat, and uh, I think he wrote El Cazador. And uh, and now he's doing Clinton Cash the comic. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, <laughs> that kind of, that kind of does bum me out. Honestly, I, re- I remember really liking, and I know I've mentioned this a few times, uh, Proposition Player, uh, by Bill Willingham. So yeah. I would love to actually see Bill Willingham do like a, like gambling con man mm-hmm. comic. I think, I think that he could probably do, that would be the sort of thing that he could just, totally do I, I wouldn't really need the fantasy or the, the... um i'd put size spurrier on a detective story mm. just like straight up detective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's tough again there's bits and pieces like oh yeah put garth ennis on a crooked cock cock crooked cop comic and uh you know and that's you've got something like red team or something so the great thing is is we I, don't I really have red to. team and you're like oh <laughs> <laughs> You've read Red Team, right? I, I read like the first four or five issues, first four issues maybe. I was kind of into it until I don't know where it went. But, you know, again, I picked up the next couple of issues. Sorry, I don't really trust you either. So you can say that it well, turned when it out comes to, Well, when it comes to Garth Ennis, like you and me have very different definitions of what is acceptable. Yes, exactly. So, so yeah. We'll, we'll, Although we will both agree that a train called Love is terrible, right? I refuse to pick it up. I absolutely okay. refuse. That was the right choice. Yeah, that no, was very much the Just right choice. Between the title, the cover, and the way they tried to describe it, I'm like, I'm not getting within 500 feet of that thing. That, that which was, was interesting, because you know, I did such a good job when Dynamite had its single issue digital sale. I stayed away for it for so long, and then the last two days, I like caved and bought stuff. Um, but I was very proud of myself that I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, you know who I'd give the Crooked Cop comic to? Talking mm. about Dynamite? Uh, Michael Carroll, who, uh, the reason I made the connection was he took on Jennifer Blood after Al Ewing left. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's also just finished the great run on Judge Dredd, mm-hmm. the, uh, killing off Judge Dredd storyline. Mm. He, 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 he did that, uh, the crossover between that and the magazine. Mm-hmm. That was great. Mm-hmm. That showed that he was very good at, um, long game planning. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, I, I'd, I'd be really curious to see what he'd do with that as well. Uh, oh, and Dwayne Swarzynski, of course, who did Black yes. Hood, who's, who's, who's who, just uh, great and keeps doing comics that are really good and no one fucking reads them. Yeah. That, and Black Hood was one that I thought was, was really exceptional. So you I'm, know what? You know that's coming back, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's, se- there's a second volume coming soon. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll Wait, see. Is still on? Yes. Yeah, I would think so, because I think that's the only reason why they consider doing it, I would hope. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. So I think I think there we go. I think that's sort of a rough roundup. We gave you some, some actual titles and some actual things we plucked from our heads. But like I said, I do really actually appreciate the fact that there's so much that's out there, whether or not it stays out there. Oh, that would be another thing. It would be great to have Jason Shiga actually write something and then have someone else like slave over the drawings, you know, <laughs> Jason Shiga and Jeff Darrow. Yeah. Right. Would that not like be the strangest and yet perhaps most exciting thing you could read? Well, you know, actually one of the things that's really funny is I w- there was a really good interview, uh, at the beat, I think with Shiga and he talked about how he really also, likes the very direct simplicity, you know, in storytelling. Um, 
so part of me is like, yeah, Darrow would be great, but 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 Shiga really likes having things kind of pared down. So I also really wonder it'd be very interesting to see him work with someone like I don't know someone who someone who can really who can like Doc Shaner, you know, someone who yeah, can really yeah. keep it very beautiful but also very direct. You know. Uh before we move on, I just realized uh Ryan North and Erica Henderson, I'd just take them off Squirrel Girl and go, Whatever you want to do. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, that would be another one where it's like, yeah, a comedy romance comic, that would be Yeah, yeah, whatever whatever you guys want to do, yeah. go for it. Yeah. Evan Harrison Harrison Cass says, Jeff, what is your current angle stand <laughs> regarding the purchase of Marvel products? I've lost track. I feel like we literally just covered this. I am I imagining that that we literally just covered this? Um I don't know. Maybe do it. I think, did we not talk about it last time when we were talking about taking stands on behalf of others? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. Cause it was, well, cause that was actually sort of a follow up on Comixology Unlimited. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I address that. And that's the thing. I feel like since the Kirby thing, uh, it's been, it's, it's been at least a year where it's been relatively consistent, which is, I'm, I'm, I am, oh, I am quote unquote okay. Like my whatever, I have varying quiet private moments of hand wringing, but otherwise I'm like, bring it on. My Marvel Collector Core box featuring Spider Man showed up today, and I was like, this is a, an awesome little Spider Man hat, and I totally adore this patch, and I'm very excited by. Uh, this plushie and, uh, the fact that Steve Ditko is seeing none of this money is, uh, doesn't, isn't bothering Ditko any. So, so I, so I'm fine. Everything is fine, as they say. So, uh, and then uh, far more interesting, I think, uh, was Evan's, uh, second question, which is when Tom, Tim Seeley and Tom King were co-writing their critically acclaimed Grayson run. Most critics, including you two, assumed Seeley's contribution wasn't as key as King's. I know for a fact that Tim felt frustrated that he wasn't given fair credit for bits that were his, that were critically celebrated. What shapes the impression that a Seeley type writer is B-list while a King type is A-list? Which I think is a really good question. Um, I, I have a, I have a really simple but cruel answer, and I have a more complicated answer. Yeah, I think your your simple and cruel one might might mesh up with mine. But yeah, let's go for it. So what? Which let's, is basically his backlist, right? Which was for me was actually his current list because uh, you know I was reading some of the Grayson stuff at the same time he was working on doing issues of Batman Eternal, which mm-hmm. may, you know a weekly Batman book well, may not be but, the best way to gauge yeah. someone's especially because that is plotted by you know seventy two other people. Mm-hmm. Well, supposedly, but, but like things like Hag Slash, mm-hmm. you know, never resonated for me in the same way that the the best Grayson issues did. Mm-hmm. Um, his vertical stuff didn't either. He mm-hmm. was doing I oh got I can't even remember the name of the book he was doing with Marley Zirko, and what was that called? I can even see the covers in front of me, and I can't remember what it was called. Uh, but I, I, like, that didn't work for me in the same way either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really was, you know, it, it, when I read stuff by him solo, Effigy was what it was called. Uh, when I read stuff by him solo, it didn't do, it didn't push the same buttons that Grayson was pushing. Right. So I just assumed that the buttons belonged to King. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And especially because then you'd see something like Vision mm-hmm. or, or Omega Man. Mm-hmm. Which did push those buttons and right. was King Solo. Yeah. 
so that was that was why I did it to like for for me I'm like I will you know Ockram Fraser would suggest the stuff I was liking was was not Tim Seeley and and was Tim King, uh, Tom King then yeah and I, and I do think that there is like I said there was the I don't know I mean what I will say is is that a that's that is kind of a shame that uh, you know. I still have sort of an all one or the other kind of mentality that is, is very hard. Comics are a huge, you know, our collaborative medium, but I feel like having been talking about them for literally decades now, and it's still hard for me to sort of refer to the writer and the artist, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I fall into the habit of the writer giving the writer too much credit. And so it wouldn't surprise me that when you get two writers on there in your brain, you know, it's it's just that weird, unfortunately, all or nothing dynamic. I will say that there are times where I wish as much as I enjoy King's solo work, I do think that Seeley could bring a, a certain level of irreverence or humor or lightning or something like that, that mm-hmm. in Grayson that I sort of miss in some of King's other stuff. Well, here's the here's the slightly more complicated answer. Have you been reading Seely's solo Nightwing book? Uh, I have not. It reads like Grayson, like very like Grayson. Uh, a more superheroic version, sure, right? Because he's gone back to the costume, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't read like the Seely that I know from Effigy or from Hackslash. Mm-hmm. You know, so so there is that level of like, huh. Maybe there was more Seely in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I mean, Grayson also didn't help it by the fact that the issues that you and I went gaga over, right. the credits actually said, plot by Seely and King, script by King. That's right. And the ones where I was like, why would you were the one who pointed out to me that they alternated on the writing? Because it was like issue four or whatever, where I was like, this issue wasn't very good at all. Why? What the hell was that? And, and you pointed out, it's like, well, it's kind of a, it's kind of this guy, you know, which I mean, so may I, or may I, not like, have I been feel the bad. Case. I feel mm-hmm. bad for me. Like, sorry, Tim, but at the same time, you know, there's a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that we were not being drastically unfair with, with attributing credit. Well, but it also is tough. I have to say that I appreciate the fact that Evan's talking about these things and, and, and Seeley has not, you know, I mean, I feel for him. I hope that he can go and, and, and really break out on his own and be able to, well, you know, put out really read, read, read Nightwing. Yeah. yeah. Check out Nightwing. Uh, when the first collection comes out, I think it might be something you'll, you'll actually really dig. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, but, but it is, I, I appreciate, I feel for how frustrating that must be. And I'm, I'm impressed that he is gracious and generous enough and at least aware enough of the marketplace that it wouldn't do him any favors to stand up and start hollering. So, but is it, it's a drag. Ray Mescalado. I'll ask this one because, oh boy, uh, you get to green light a Legion of Superheroes movie. What era of Legion would you use? Grell 70s, Levitz Giffen, five years after, reboot, three boot, etc. And why? Would you connect it to the cinematic DCU and how? Which Legionnaires would you focus on and who do you imagine playing their roles? So, you know, unpack <laughs> Nothing, that one. Major. <laughs> uh, okay, in order. 
Yes. I would use a composite of multiple eras, but probably wouldn't go any further than the Levitz given. Mm-hmm. I'm going to probably concentrate on an updated version of the original. Um, because I, well, first of all, I don't think you want to do a straight adaptation of any era. Because why would you? Like, why not come up with the best version that works for movies based on all the source material? Mm-hmm. I, I, well, why would you do anything else? Would you connect it to the cinematic DCU and how? I wouldn't kill myself over it. I mean, I might do like a, an Easter egg cameo because I think that's what people would expect. But it, I, I would definitely want to set the film in a thousand years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, which Legionnaires would you focus on? Oh, shit. Um... The originals, Cosmic Boy, Lightning Lad, and Saturn Girl, uh, and Brainiac 5, because everyone needs an asshole. Um, and Phantom Girl. Hmm. I think that's the ones I'd focus on. Um, and who do you imagine playing the roles? I have no idea. Right. No idea whatsoever. I, 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 I'm kind of tempted to be a dick and be like, Miles Teller playing Brainiac 5. <laughs> uh, I don't know why that amuses me so, but it really does and I could not explain it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know who I'd imagine playing the roles at all. Jeff? Uh, you know, I think, I think I would run very similar to that. I'm part of me, um, I could see a current incarnation, like under the current DC cinematic universe. Um, but assuming this is a ways down the road, assuming as everyone does that dark side is going to end up being introduced and the big bad of the justice league. I think that it would be great to have the Legion of superheroes take place a thousand years later. There's like, you know, dim you know occluded footage so that pe- these guys are very drawn to the idea of superman and maybe even batman and stuff like that and but so that toward the end of the movie when it turns out that the villain is the big bad is dark side kind of like with the great darkness uh arc it kind of is a great holy shit moment you know, because yeah, the yeah. idea that this guy is still there and is still absolutely the same, if not even freakier, um, is just, just a great idea. You know, it's, it's a really wonderful execution of it. Um, and so I could see how that would actually work. I think you would move it toward some version of something like that, that I think could be, but I mean, again, sort of like that's almost the idea that plays off. I mean, this is part of the problem I feel sometimes with the cinematic DCU is some of their stuff. It's like, it's like with the Green Lantern movie. It's like so much of it was to set off stuff that was really going to be awesome in the second movie. And the first movie just kind of sucked butt, you know? So it's yeah. like, you know, so I, I'm like, yeah, that would be an amazing reveal. Like for the second movie as you lead into the third movie, since it's got the, you know, Empire Strikes Back kind of dark feel to it. But well, that's fascinating. Cause I was like, Oh no, you do that as a movie. You do the whole thing as a movie. Well, like as one movie, mm, do you do the great darkness as one movie? Yeah. See, I think, I think you would do the setup for it 
end it at the second movie and then the third would be would basically be the the great darkness but i think you'd have to have a lighter thing that would set set some of that stuff up and tease it then the second movie would like grind a little more darkly and then there's the dark side revelation and then you move into the third one um my big thing though is and this is the part that's hard is a i don't really pay enough attention to who actual teenagers are these days you know <laughs> like no but i got to say one of the things like uh that i really adored about stranger things was the fact that the kids were kids you know i'm yeah, yeah. i'm rereading um all the pretty horses by Cormac McCarthy and I did not see the movie but you know they turned around and made a movie of it that was a big flop where they cast Matt Damon in the lead which made some sense it was directed by Billy Bob Thornton I want to say that uh what's her name maybe Selma Hayek was the female lead or something in it and you know, it was cut from, like, the original cut was, like, four hours long or four and a half hours long and beautiful and really faithful to the book. And, of course, the, you know, there was no way that it was testing well. Uh, it was not the commercially viable hit the Weinstein brothers wanted, and they cut it down to something like two hours. And so it seemed kind of doomed in that regard. But one of the things that really struck me in rereading the book that I had completely forgotten is – all the characters, all the lead characters, John Grady Cole and his buddy, they are 16 years old. I think maybe his buddy's 17, John Grady's 16, the girl is uh, 17, and the one of the kids that they, uh, an outlaw that they end up, um, uh, I don't know, trying to protect is is only 14, if that. You know, and it makes a huge, huge difference, I feel. So part of me is kind of like, I, part of me would like the Legion of Superheroes to be, to have them actually be as close to actual teenagers as you can get, yeah, which means. Which would be great. Which is something I really like about Spider Man casting. Yes. I do too. I think the Spider Man casting is great for that. And I'm, and, but it also does, it makes it a lot harder for you to turn around and be like, oh, then you should totally cast. Yeah, but cast, cast lots of unknowns. What's that? Cast lots of unknowns. Cast yeah. lots of people we've never heard of. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it, 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 like, cast the fucking cast of the get down. That'll be fine. Uh, or the cast of Stranger Things. Like, yeah. I, I, you know, Finn Wolfhard and, my God, Millie Bobby Brown. You haven't bothered with Stranger Things, have you, Graham? I, I'd like to point out that I have been out of a house and haven't had access to Netflix for five weeks. Okay, but you, how did, then how do you know about the get down? How, how, why would you say I, cast I knew, the I get knew about the get down ahead of time. I, 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 I talked to people who were, who were doing the get down way back when and I saw, I saw things. Oh, I see. Oh, look at you. Mr. Okay, well, that's fine. I anyway. still haven't seen an episode, which is killing me because I really want to see it. Yeah, I do too. Although part of me is kind of like the, the fact that it's only the first batch of them and there's... It's not just like first six episodes or four first, episodes? First six and then and then the, the remaining eight or whatever are coming at some point in the future. I'm just like, oh boy. So uh, anyway, so yeah, you know, oh, uh, that being said, part of me would also like to have... Part of me is a little bit like throw a little more of the one thing that I do like about Brian Singer's X-Men movies, which I swear to God is a phrase that will be uttered less and less as time goes on by anyone is, uh, is that at least Singer did a pretty good job of sort of 
throwing some of the fan service characters in the backgrounds to sort of suggest a larger yeah. universe. Yeah, it's for everything that he does wrong, and he does a lot wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that some dude somewhere is like, is that Husk? Right. Is that yeah. Chamber? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and with the Legion, holy shit. Just have a guy who looks like a fucking yellow whale in the background. So I'll be like, is that Talos? Right. You know, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. I saw a spark. Was that Quizlets? Right. Yeah. You, yeah, 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 yeah. Easy to do. Yeah, exactly. So that way we can get stuff like, I don't know, Feral Lad or Wildfire without actually having to push them to the forefront or anytime immediately. So, yeah. Levi Tompkins asks, do you think the lack of LGBTQI characters in Marvel books now is a result of them worried about how to deal with presenting these characters in other mediums like cartoons and movies? I sure don't. Not really. No. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've got to be honest. I don't either. Um, because completely cynically, I don't think Marvel Studios gives a fuck one or the other. Yeah. I think, I think Marvel comics could turn every single one of their characters queer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Marvel Studios would be like, nope. That's great. Yeah. Steve Rogers, not a Hydra agent, not a Nazi, still fucks women. Well, you uh, know, I, although I agree with you, I do have to say one of the things that's interesting to me about, um, you know, I, as I mentioned to many people, I had get, tried my hand at Marvel's Future Fight, Final Fight, I can't remember, I guess it's Future Fight, uh, which is, you know, the quasi sort of Diablo-y type thing. They've introduced, they just had a uh, push where they introduced... Gwenpool, Squirrel Girl, the White Tiger, Hulkling, Wiccan, and Songbird, uh, all as playable characters. And there's a storyline that introduces them. And A, I was very impressed that at one point in the exchange of dialogue, it's specifically referenced that, that Wiccan and Hulkling are boyfriends, which I thought was, uh, was pretty awesome. And there's the other thing that I think amazing about Marvel Future Fight is there are a bajillion of characters, it seems like, that are now playable. They keep pushing the female characters to the forefront. And they're sort of kind of did a little bit with characters of color. Like, they've got to get better at it. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, the weirdest thing is, is that Squirrel Girl doesn't have squirrel teeth. Like that part's, but that's like, (laughs) to me, that's the most disturbing part. But part of me is kind of like, you know, in my head, what I really want to do is see those figures and be like, is the majority of like people playing Marvel Future Fight, are there a lot of female players, which is why they're bringing more female characters in there? Or do they want to be seen as more diverse? You know, like Marvel definitely wants to be seen as more diverse. Oh, I think so too. And I think think that they are but but with video games sometimes it, it is slightly different they might genuinely actually be more diverse in that sense well, well my understanding of the the marvel hierarchy is that the marvel video games uh team has a much better relationship with marvel publishing uh than marvel studios has with marvel publishing yeah yeah uh, and because they've actually done specific tie-ins between mm-hmm. each other like yeah. you have the contest champions comic 
but the Contest Champions game had Secret Wars content when Secret Wars was coming out. Right. Uh, yeah. So, you know, they do cross promotions much more that way. Yeah. Um, I think, honestly, the lack of uh, queer characters in Marvel books right now is because Marvel editorial doesn't want them there. I think... I, to, I, to be perfectly honest... I think... I, I, I don't yeah. think it's... Uh, and I don't mean that like uh, they're completely homophobic. I just mean it in the sense of like it's not a priority. Because mm. I, I feel that the... And I might be wrong, but I feel that when it comes down to like LGBTQ characters of any uh, stature, mm-hmm. they're either in an Al Ewing written book right. or... And Kieran Gillen was previously a Kieran Yeah, there, there's but... Iceman in, in All New X-Men, and I think that's it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I think it just comes down to, you know, you had Sarah in, in Angela. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think it's just, uh, I think it's a blind spot at best. Shall we say? I, I think, I feel that that sort of stuff tends to be driven more by the creators, perhaps, than editorial. And so, uh, to the extent, uh, okay, you don't think so? You don't think that Al Ewing? I feel like Al Ewing, for sure, example, is sure, somebody. but, uh, but uh, I, I, on you go, Jeff. Wow. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> say anything else. Let's pop, go. Let's pop Moving to on. the second Levi question. What do you think of Valiant's plans to create a movie verse or Valiant's attempts at extending their brand into other media formats in general? Uh, good for them. If it, if it happens, then sure. Great. Right. Uh, I, you know, their, their movie plans seem sensible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that the superhero movie bubble, if it is a bubble, doesn't burst before they get a chance to get stuff on screen. Well, don't you think that it's been too long for it to really be? I, well, that, yeah, exactly. That's just it. at this point, you know, if it's a bubble, it's a bubble. It's been going for eight years. Yeah. Um, I, I, but yeah, I, I don't know. We'll see. Um, I hope that I hope that it all goes well. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the most I can say. Like I, I'm not sure quite what the question is there. Like, well, are, are we supposed to think that it's bad or, like, why? I guess why would I be anything other than good luck to them? Do you uh, know? Well, I I suspect, although I don't know, Levi is someone who, who having listened to an enormous chunk, maybe all of our episodes at. In, in a very short period of time might be aware that there's a, a bit of a schism between you and I, at least in the sense of the Valiant books are good books that you really enjoy and appreciate and root for and that I can acknowledge are good and yet have no real emotional connection to them at all. You know, And so I don't know if perhaps he was trying to tease out a question that would put us on sort of opposite sides of the spectrum, each arguing for a, a different angle. Cause the fact is I'm kind of, I'm still, I'm still, um, a valiant agnostic. Like I, there's a lot of things that I can sort of really respect. I appreciated some of the pages that Graham posted to the Tumblr recently and I'm just, I just don't have that sort of emotional commitment to the characters. But I mean, 
for me, what I think is important about a movie verse for any successful movie verse is, is that you've got to be able to form that emotional connection to the characters mm-hmm. in the movie. You know, I, it's, it's, it's telling the ones they started with, like mm-hmm. the two properties that are, that are in, that have been announced. Mm-hmm. It's telling that they've gone for, for not just the shared universe, but like literally the five movies where it's two solo movies for individual concepts and mm-hmm. then the crossover. Do you know right. what I mean? Like they're like, Oh, you'll buy into Harbinger because Harbinger is the, is the X-Men. Right. Jeremy, like Har- Harbinger, you get the creative team for the movie, right? Mm-hmm. And you're pretty good. Yeah. Cause, cause it's, it's teens, it's outsider teens with superpowers. Right. And that's, that's, you get the, you get the teens right and you've got a pretty good buy-in. Bloodshot is a bit more of a gimme. I think you, I think you've got to work harder for Bloodshot, but again, the, uh, amnesiac, you know, if you're looking for a successful, relatively recent movie franchise, mm-hmm. you know, Bloodshot is invincible Jason Bourne. Right. He's Jason Bourne with nanotechnology. Right. You know, it, it, again, it, you can see a, a way to sell that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you lead up to the crossover between the two of them. Yeah. I think when you start getting into stuff like Exo Manowar mm-hmm. or Ray, I think you've got more problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, if only because Exo Manowar, the high concept makes sense to comics where you're used to rip-offs of characters, but saying it's Conan and Iron Man <laughs> feels like it's maybe too obvious for, for movie audiences. I don't know. I just – like Exo honestly seems like the one that people might be like, really? To me. Man, I don't know. I Honestly, I feel like Exo is the one where it's actually going to be – that's almost easier. You know, because again, it's that idea of like, that seems so insane. And there's a, there is like movies, there's a lot of people who go to movies to see crazy shit. In fact, it, there, that's part of the draw. So the idea that you throw a caveman in a suit of armor, you know, they're like, that sounds insane, but there's different ways to rip it off. It helps that Iron Man is enough of a, um, established icon, icon. yeah it's cinematically that you can play with that while also toying with i don't know kubrick's 2001 like there's just weird ways you can go with that that might that might make it eye-catching or it might be terrible i mean that is that is the (laughs) weird yeah there really is the possibility for exo to just be yeah, to you know, appallingly go the Doc Savage Shane Black route. Yeah, you I know, mean, where it's like there's lots of comedy to be found yep. and a caveman with yeah. a suit of alien armor, and yeah. it's like, oh no, sure there is, but that's an Adam Sandler movie. Let's not <laughs> see exactly. And some people are going to be like, we're fucking so glad we got Adam Sandler to do this film. Exactly, yeah. it's going to be his breakthrough role. Yeah, completely. Garrett asks, well, uh, I guess he's got questions. Could a Jack Kirby creative output and, oh, sorry, sorry, could a Jack Kirby, parenthetical, creative output and brand new ideas exist in today's comic industry? Hey, Rob Liefeld still is around, everyone. (laughs) Are there any writers, artists, or writer artists currently working today that come close? Uh, hmm. No. uh, (laughs) No to the second. And I kind of cynically want to say no to the first. Uh, well, it depends on which angle of the comics industry are, are, are you looking at, 
You know, because I feel yeah, yeah, yeah. You couldn't do Jack Kirby in today's Marvel or DC. Yeah, you just Could can't. Because I Could just not, yeah. So there's there's no way the lines are absolutely positively clear about. But I I also Friar. think you couldn't have a Kirby like come up from out of anywhere either because part of what makes Kirby Kirby is he invented a, a language, a visual language, and reinvented genres and invented genres and i feel like all of that is so present now mm-hmm. in part because of kirby right that there isn't the space for anyone to be jack kirby anymore uh, interesting interesting uh, my my personal feeling is is that is that yeah it's really hard these days it's harder now in part because comics are actually less disposable than they used to be uh it's really worth remembering kirby was amazing it sort of i mean what we think of as kirby this eruption of talent is is one of the world's greatest second acts you know the fact that kirby was creating comics well second or third i mean depending on how you want to do it he had he had his early period of success he had like success again in the 50s with the romance genre and the other titles that they more or less invented and revitalized and then he more or less you know in Invented modern superhero comics. Yeah, modern superhero comics as his, you know, third and most dramatic act. But so you really have to look at someone who has been in the industry uh, uh, for like, I don't know, 20 or 30 years and is and is then is finally like busting out at, at an all new level of sort of reinvention and things. I don't. I don't know. I mean, the sad part is the other thing is, is that Kirby, part of what helped create Kirby and make him what he is, is his conditions were kind of terrible. Like, yeah. in order so to... Fail, failure and, and setbacks are responsible for Kirby. Failure and setbacks, but also, like, a terrible wage. Like, he had to turn out that many pages in order to be able to, you know provide a decent living for his family and in some ways you know when you get someone like john byrne complaining that every all all of today's comic artists are like too spoiled or whatever it's like i don't i don't i don't believe byrne but i do believe that it's harder to forge someone in that exact same you can't forge someone if the furnace doesn't exist anymore you know what I mean? If it's a completely different set of working conditions. I mean, there's... Comics, some... fair wage, fairer wage has ruined conditions to create Kirby. <laughs> Jeff Lester's shocker. <laughs> well, or rather that there's... there. How do I put it? It's it's like so much of America. The middle has disappeared, you know? Yeah. You've got yeah. those people who are either being paid like a ton of cash to do an issue or you've got guys like, you know, Brian Chirillo who is making like barely $32,000 a year and is working something like 18 hours, six days a week, you know? So just on one book, you know, but again, Kirby to get to the speed that he had, he had like what, two and a half, three decades of solid 
experience under his belt. There aren't, there just aren't, it, that guy was fucking tough. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't think you can get Kirby again because the Kirby, like everything about Kirby was such a product of the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, both in terms of his talent and his output, but also his impact. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just, I just don't, I don't think there's, there's, there's the ability to have a Kirby again. Well, I, I'm trying, I'm trying to take the Kirby impact out of, out of the equation since Garrett doesn't mention it. And honestly, there's people where, um, I think, I think Adam Warren turns around a shit ton of pages. You know, I mean, his, his empowered books are, well, I don't know. Maybe that's just 12 monthly issues. You really don't get anything like Kirby where it's like literally, a book a week, three weeks but, a but, year. But even, but even um, like in terms of the ideas, like you don't have anyone doing Kirby. Yeah, it, like the closest you come for me for that is like a 2000 AD, mm-hmm. where there's such a, an appetite for not even new ideas because Kirby Blyson didn't really come up with new ideas as much as he came up with different spins on existing ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why we love him. Cause we're like, Oh, it's if, you know, it's not Planet of the Apes, it's Commandy. Right. But you can't get to Commandy without Planet of the Apes. Well, I, I, you know, or, or you can't, I, but I don't, like, I don't see enough of that elsewhere either. I, I, think I, I don't know. I, I just think, I think, I think Kirby's a one-off. I, is, is the, my end. I, 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 there will never, I don't think there will ever be another person like him, certainly, but I, I don't know. I think the other thing, the other thing to keep in mind is, again, Kirby, Kirby was not especially sentimental about his characters. And so there, there are, um, and yet the, the amount of energy and commitment that he had, you know, is really hard to beat. Cause I do think there's ways in which, you know, the fact that Kirby, I mean, when you, as we looked at, say, Fantastic Four, or we look at Thor, like, some of his story, his stories cheat like hell, they can be cyclical, he'll, he'll do variations on the same thing, then he'll do variations on the new idea, but part of what's amazing about him is the fact that he is, he's not especially sentimental about it's like something gets canceled, he moves on and creates another one. There's times where but, that embitters yeah. him, but, you know. But also, I mean, you look at something like his Fourth World stuff where he's, like, forever people, it's Space Hippies book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've got to, like, who, what creator today, especially in superhero comics, looks outside of comic culture to contemporary mainstream popular culture? Mm-hmm. Never mind counterculture, right? To that degree these days, I don't know. I mean, there there are people who are there. They just they certainly don't do it as well. But but I do think that that Kirby, yeah, Kirby Kirby had and he had a lot of interest. He had a lot of stuff pouring into his brain, and they all it all came out in in a in a mash. It would be one wonderful if we had people. Uh, like him, but but yeah, certainly in terms of the big two, we're never going to see that again. And frankly, I you know I I think the the big two, it's going to be we're generally just going to see um, reinventions of the wheel until they change 
creator profit participation, which neither of them are ever going to do. So I don't think. Uh, should we move on to Adam Wolf? Do you want to read sure. this? Sure. I should read First, this one because, yes. Okay. No, I, I know why you want to read this one because he's talking about a book you often read. Exactly. First question. <laughs> I read the first Flintstones by Mark Russell and I have the same feeling about it that I usually do after reading a Thomas Pynchon book, which, and believe me, I almost went and bought both issues based on just that comparison. Amused, a little perplexed, not sure if I was getting everything the author put in, but ultimately this feeling that I read something intellectual that I should feel smart for having read. Ultimately, I think I enjoyed it, but I was wondering, what are your thoughts on this series? Uh, and is Russell's Prez going to see a second volume? Um, we know the answer to the second one, which is no. Yeah, but he, we Adam didn't when we, when it was asked. Yeah. So yeah, but I, I'm just I'm putting that in. It's apparently yes. getting a, a, a an election special. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. we'll see what that is because it apparently doesn't sound like it's an issue. Yeah, sounds like it's like a ten page story for something. Um, who even fucking knows um, I really like the Flintstones but the Flintstones is a strange book mm-hmm. um, I actually think the second issue is better than the first mm-hmm. uh, because the second issue illustrates between the first and second issue I saw Mark Russell at San Diego and I saw Mark Russell talk about what he wants the book to be Um. And to my mind, the second issue illustrates that better than the first mm-hmm. because his his selling point for the series was essentially the Flintstones is a satire on contemporary living mm-hmm. that shows that we are all fucked up and then basically blames Bedrock for doing it first. <laughs> and so the first issue of the Flintstones is... Uh, a take on corporate culture mm-hmm. and, uh, and sort of places Fred Flintstone as the, not even a middle manager, but like the, the schlub who, who works. There, there's a joke in it about why he's always wearing the necktie mm-hmm. uh, because he's been told that he should dress for the job he wants, not the job he has. Uh, but he's been doing it for 15 years. Mm-hmm. One's noticed. Um, and the, the second issue is, just a great, like, and also relatively short. I think it's only 20 pages. Um, wonderful series of very tight, very sly jokes about the cyclical nature of consumer society mm-hmm. and about the ease with which we buy into advertising mm-hmm. um, for everything, not only for products, Although there's a great joke about the latest thing in lawn care, and it's literally a goat tied to a board. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also religion, mm-hmm. uh, because they attend the church, and the church is the guy. In the church is like, I need something to bring these guys in, and so he basically gets a uh, uh, um, a dinosaur. It's like, look, this is your god. <laughs> And everyone's like, oh my god, and they all start praising him, and then they see another one, and they're like, wait, that's another of our gods. Are these just animals? <laughs> uh, and the, the church guy is like, okay, you got me. Like, sure, it, it's just an animal. I just wanted to give you guys something to worship. Wow. Um, and and so you get this, it, I, and it's a fucking Flintstones comic, you know? And like, in the middle of this, there's a joke about Flintstones vitamins. Wow. Um, 
And there's also like there's there's, there's there, and because of that, you have the self-reflexive thing of like Russell knows that he's doing this this book, which is the first and second issues are both very funny, mm-hmm. but they're not. You don't finish the book feeling happy, <laughs> for one of a better way of putting it. Wow. You finish the book, especially the first issue, as being like, oh shit. Oh crap. The first, the first issue is really sad by the time you finish it. Hmm. Because you, and that, the first and second issue, you realize that like, all of these characters are searching for something and want something that they'll never get. Mm-hmm. That they're never going to get. Mm-hmm. And they'll never realize they're never going to get it. Mm-hmm. And want it so much. Mm. So it, it's, and it's Flintstones book, you know? Right. Like, uh, you have a goat on a board as a lawnmower. <laughs> which is a, you know, it's a perfect Flintstones joke. It really yeah. genuinely is. And it's called something like the Goatomator or something like that. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, it's, it is, uh, I think seeing a muse perplexed, a little perplexed, not sure if I get everything put in, is re- a really fair description. Mm-hmm. Um, because Russell's working on, on multiple levels. And, and to be honest, after seeing him in San Diego, I'm not sure if he necessarily, not that he knows all the levels he's putting into it, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure if he thinks he's successful with it, mm-hmm. which also makes it a very interesting book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He seemed almost apologetic about it when he was talking about it. Um, like, simultaneously, I can't believe I'm getting away with this. Right. But so, like, I'm not sure if this is what I should be doing. Which made it a really interesting. It's a very interesting read, Jeff. Hmm. It's, it's I genuinely would highly recommend it. Also, Steve Pugh is drawing, right? And st- like the art is just lovely. The art is is pitch perfect to both get the comedy aspect over, mm-hmm. but also the melancholy. Hmm. Um. So yeah, it's 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 great. Of of the, I think we we talked before about like the the weird Hanna Barbera books. Yes. Like, You've got Jeff Parker and Evan Shaner doing Future Quest, which is, you know, not a slavish recreation of Johnny Quest and all those cartoons, right. but in the spirit of. Yeah. Uh, and then you've got Flintstones, and then you've also got, like, fucking Wacky Raceland and Scooby Apocalypse in there. It's nuts. <laughs> it's just amazing. And the fact that at least two of the four books are genuinely great is is kind of staggering. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Like, I, this is just me being cynical. I'm sure Flintstones isn't long for this world because because it is not the Flintstones books that people expect. Mm-hmm. It's this much weirder thing that I think it's going to be one of those books that, like is going to end up on lots of best books of the year you weren't reading lists in December. By which point it will have been cancelled. Right, right. Well, I should I should hop on hop on those issues now. Then second question. Do you think that Grant Morrison stole his idea of transporting to different universes through a different musical instrument in multiversity from the uh, He-Man Masters of the Universe movie from the 1980s? There's a dwarf-like creature in that movie that uses a type of flute, if I recall, to travel back and forth from our realm to Eternia. You know, I have to admit, I've never seen the, the, I never watched the Masters of the Universe live action movie and I've been wanting to for a long time because. Given how much it is basically New Gods the movie, I, I'm surprised. Right. Ever since you've said that, I'm like, 
shit, I've got to watch that. It's so. terrible, Jeff. I just want to put that out there right now. <laughs> it's like anything good. Yeah. Um, I am going to give a legit answer. I think that Morrison stole it from a Flash comic from the 60s. Ooh. I want to say, and I could be wrong, that the Fiddler transports between Earth 1 and Earth 2 because of his his fiddle. Mm-hmm. And I might be misremembering that, but I, I, that really uh, strikes a chord, no pun intended, mm-hmm. uh, for me. And I, I think that he's, he's stealing it from like Justice League or Flash from the 60s. Which might also be where He-Man stole it from. It could be. I mean, I think, I think honestly, it's a strangely classical idea. You know, the, I know that Morrison, I think at one point in one of his, um, uh, interviews refers to, mentions the music of the spheres, which is a concept that goes back to what the English Renaissance, if not earlier, I think, which is the idea that uh, once you start trying to come up with ways to picture how the universe works um, as these sort of various spheres sort of all rotating within one another. And I believe that was kind of his idea for how the multiverse worked. It's kind of, except, um, you know, I think what Morrison uses, they used to believe in the, what's it, what was it called? The luminiferous ether? You know, this basically, <laughs> I'm not, I'm definitely not going to try and pronounce that word. So yes, right. Jeff. But do you know what I'm talking about, Graham? <laughs> I, I, I do, but I'm not going to try and pronounce yeah, that word. I, th- I think it is the luminiferous ether. Uh, essentially before we had any sort of idea about gravity as some, the, the idea of what was the medium that connected everything that held everything together was this idea that there, there would be this thing anyway i believe morrison took that idea of essentially music and sound and vibration which again very descended from the flash comics uh you know using that idea of vibration to separate the various earths which is you know the gardner fox concept the idea of making music or sound which is a form of vibration the um the ability what gives you the ability to to move between them and also call out that classical idea. All that said, my main reason is, is I kind of feel that um, Morrison, when he has a connection like that, if it's really goofy, I think he's very quick to play that up. You know, like I sort of feel like he's, um, I feel like, I feel like Morrison, maybe like a lot of creators is uh, quick to, um, acknowledge the small influences and try and bury the big ones, but you know, maybe not. Roger Winston or Flash. I'm guessing the E is silent. Do you think oh, that's fair? I have no idea. Yeah, I would say, say Flashy. Flash. Yeah, Flash is, uh, Flash is here with another Legion question. Yeah, as a time Legion of Superheroes fanboy from way back, Cockrum, Grell, Levitz, Given, Beyond, I am incensed that DC doesn't know what to do with the LHS this, these days. Why is that? Is the concept just not something that connects with modern audiences? Or have they just not found the correct approach or creators to make it work nowadays? What do you think DC should do with the property? I'm counting all this as one question, though you're free to handle it as you see fit. 
Did we handle this last time? Because we definitely did a Legion question last time. We definitely did, yeah, in which I pitched my idea and you hated it, so... I just didn't think it's right for a Legion book. So hated it, so... <laughs> and then and then Graham uh, had his I, idea, which I, was mired to failure like all the other versions. I will say that it's... it. I think it is a concept that doesn't connect with modern audiences because I think ultimately Legion is an optimistic concept, and I think optimism really doesn't connect often with modern audiences. That's interesting. I'm not sure that I would actually buy that. I mean, for me, maybe that's true with the comics audiences and what they say they want, yeah, but I, what actually yeah. sales. But uh, Yeah, I, I, I specifically meant in comics. I see. Okay. So I, I think there's something to that. I think that, honestly, it's just the waters are so muddied for fans that it's tough to figure out like where to start or what's the best version to, to go with. And, and frankly, I just think that for everyone else doing a science, it's science fiction in the far future and it's superheroes is kind of a, is, is, is kind of a weirdly hard one to wrap people's brains around from the outside. So that's my uh, question. Question number two, he asks, what is your preferred comic reading environment? For me, it's iPad, recliner, beer, music on the headphones, usually nice. after work and before dinner. Mm-hmm. If I try and read in bed at night, it's snooze land and no retention. This I, is a great question. Isn't it? It's such a good question, and I owe Roger a huge debt of gratitude for asking it, which I'll, I'll get to after you, after you tell yours, your answer. Um, it's entirely it, – it's a, a movable feast. Um, I actually do read a lot in bed. Mm-hmm. Especially now, like now that I'm out of the house and we're in someone else's house, mm-hmm. um, that's generally where I am reading comics right now. With what little comics I'm able to read. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, when I'm at home, it is normally after dinner, before bed, on the couch. Uh, normally, a pelicat is watching television. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that's that's normally it. Uh, it's almost always print comics. Uh, the only time I really read digital comics these days is unlimited stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even that, I mostly these days have been limiting to Fantastic Four for Baxter Building. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mostly print comics. Fascinating. Uh, uh, Roger, one of the reasons why I'm actually hugely grateful about this is, is that uh, I'm always sort of frustrated by my uh, two attempts to either try and read what I can't really read while Edie's watching TV. Sometimes I can kind of pull it off. Uh, there was a good period there where she was watching her uh, Inspector Lewis's and I could like Lewis. read on the couch. Yeah. Oh, then, but then I sort of got dragged into watching Lewis as well. And I think I've complained. Plus it's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, it is. It is great. I, like Lewis. I do I, like Lewis. I, I, I I do too. And in fact, I have to say compared to uh, after the ridiculousness that was the most recent season of, of Endeavor that got shown, the, the two episodes of the final season of Lewis that have been shown so far here, really strong, really good stuff. So I'm kind of hopeful that the last, that they'll, that they'll go out well with their last episode. We'll see. So, uh, 
yeah, Lewis is okay. Anyway, all of which is to say, for whatever reason, Edie and I mostly watch TV together, so I don't have that time. I've complained comically about how I will get into bed to read, and she will immediately fall asleep within five minutes of me trying to read, and is always like, it's okay, you can stay up. And I'm like, raza, raza, raza. So, but that being said, recently I've found with my recent work schedule, sometimes on Saturdays and Sunday afternoons, where I'm here with the iPad, sometimes with a beer. It's beer is great. Um, and, and this is amazing because I was like, yeah, if there was just something I could kind of watch, cause one of the great things about Lewis before you get involved in it is, is like, you can read your comic and you look up for the exterior shots and there's beautiful shots of Oxford, just gorgeous locations. Like that's one of those things that's great about Brit shows is some of the locations just moi. So, uh, I remember hearing, after reading Roger Winston's question, I was like, oh man, I totally have to talk about how what I would love, what would be optimal for me would be if I could actually watch some of the Norwegian slow TV programs, because those always sound awesome. And I, I think I've mentioned here on the podcast how much I enjoyed Sweetgrass, which was a not entirely, but largely without dialogue, a movie about a couple of cow uh, boys basically herding a group of sheep across a mountain range, largely dialogue free, like I said, and mostly gorgeous visuals. And I'm kind of, there's times where I'm just, I'm moving in that direction where I'm like, ah, so the idea that slow TV in Nor in Norway, which really started off after this enormous rating smash, uh, of a six hour train ride from, uh, was it, it's shit. It's Bergen to Oslo. It's six hour train ride filmed in real time, camera mounted on the front of the train, all one shot. I don't, I don't remember if there were, I don't think there were commercials. Got something like 3 million viewers, you know, something like at some point, like up to 30% of the country had like watched part of it. So then the slow TV craze caught on and got bigger and bigger. And anyway, I remember reading about it and being like, that is the shit for me. I, and I kind of had this thing of like, I wonder if anyone's made it available over here and God bless. And I say this with some reservations because I found out that, that Netflix had purchased six or maybe seven slow TV programs. And I was fucking over the moon. So honestly, now my preferred method of reading comics is sitting on the couch with a beer, reading the iPad and with the six hour train ride from Bergen to Oslo playing. I've only managed to make it. Uh, I think I'm four and a half hours in maybe four, four and three quarters hours in. And it's great. Cause you don't, I don't watch it continuously the whole time, but it's great to look up from and just kind of watch nature roll by. I'm totally pissed because they also have slow TV Northern passage, which originally was another huge hit in Norway. It was three days long and was an entire trip up the Northern coast of Norway by cruiser. Uh, and they ended up, Cutting it to an hour for what? Netflix. Yes. Pisses me off. And From they added three narration. Three days to an hour. Yeah. To three days to an hour. Because what they did was, so now they have, they have a narrator who's like, the ship is moving now through the seas of Snuggendorg. 
the most ferocious of the Norwegian seas. And I'm like, shut up. Whereas before it's clear they had like, they used to have like six hour shots, you know, filmed at the level just above the, you know, below the bow of the, sh- the prow of the ship cutting through water, you know, and then they would like cut that when they moved into port, they would then interview the people who were on the ship and why and where they were going, or they'd interview people from the towns they were stopping in. Sound awesome. But of course now it's all smudged into one super talky documentary. And of course the only people being interviewed are people who speak English. The few Americans who are on the door who are like, I've always loved Norway. It's like, Shut up! And, uh. You are not why I'm watching this show. Exactly. And unfortunately, some of the other longer, they've got like a four hour program that I think might have been shortened down from 12, which was another successful one where a bunch of Norwegians chop firewood and then throw it on the fire. Like they spend a lot of time talking about their famous, their favorite ways to cut firewood. And unfortunately, they have both of the knitting night specials, which again, hugely popular three hours of a group of people. Actually, I think the first one was like maybe nine hours where they're trying to, uh, um, break the world's record for like the largest sweater knitted or something. So they're all sitting around talking and knitting this sweater for like nine hours. I think there's a truncated version of that as well as the follow up. I don't remember which I think maybe has 45 minutes of discussion. And the great part is, at least for the first of the Norwegian, um, firewood specials, uh, they didn't even bother translating it. And then, and then, cut two shots of like wood burning in the fireplace for like, for, you know, 12 minutes at a time, which is anyway. So I want to thank you, Roger, because without this, at least I have the six hour train ride, which I'm really looking forward to restarting once I finish, um, as my new, uh, way of accompanying my comic book reading. That was such a wonderful answer that I just did not see coming. <laughs> That, that, oh my god. Uh, Jeff, we're almost at two hours. I'm gonna have so many questions left. Oh my god, you're right. I was like, oh, we're doing fine, cause I, I'm used to thinking yeah, of us as yeah, starting we're, at we're a really half not. hour. Yeah. Okay. No. Let's do the next ones quickly. You ready? No, dude, there's like 27 questions. We're never gonna finish this in time. But. Let's, Jeff, we're gonna do as many as we can quickly. You ready? Okay, yes. Uh, Jonathan, when DC finally brings the Legion back, what creative team? We answered it last time. Dave Clark. Oh, we got to answer it again. What did you say? I honestly can't remember. Me neither. Stanley <laughs> and Jack Kirby. Okay, go on. <laughs> Dave Clark. Compare and contrast Judge Dredd big summer events with those of the big two. Um, I can do this really glibly. Sure. That's what do you uh, think? I, we just are, answered the other one. Sure, they're better mm-hmm. uh, because they're more coherent. They are. They're tighter. They're generally one writer. Uh, they're far more self-contained. I mean, if they're a crossover, they're a crossover between, oh, two comics. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also generally are based around a story mm-hmm. as opposed to let's try and come up with a concept that will carry lots of stories. And I, I think that distinction is important. That's a good point. And also, Dread generally does big stories better mm-hmm. um, because they get to part of it is I feel like they get to... sorry on you go I was just going to say I feel like one of the great things about Dread is is that they get to like so many comics it's particularly Marvel comics over the last couple of years it's all one speed which is overdrive 
you know? And one of the things that I think is great about Dread is there's a certain amount of, um, you know, catch and release. There's several different gears there. Like, I remember I was still reading the title. They'd just gotten through, I think it was Titan or maybe something else. And then they switched back to, like, kind of some comical, goofy, yeah. Dread yeah. stories. But also, they get to do... They get to do more subtle pieces, which yeah. I think really is important as well. Uh-huh. So you get, uh, in, I can never say the right name for the Titan sequel that, that Williams and Flint did. Enchinatus? And I can't remember. But, um, but it works on multiple levels because you have the big dramatic moment, but you also have the, not even a payoff, but a payoff mm-hmm. for, Dread's ongoing relationship with Hershey, which at this point has been going for thirty years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so and and they get to play that really slow and in the background, yeah. But because it has been building for thirty years, and especially has undergone lots of changes recently in other big storylines, that there's there is an emotional weight to it, right? Uh, and there's an emotional depth to it. More importantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it, it sounds, I mean, to say, Hey, it's better sounds cheap, but I also genuinely believe it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's better. I mean, they do different things ultimately. Sure. You know, but I, but uh, as a reader, I prefer the, the dread events because they, they just, um, they seem to go more in depth. They seem to offer more variety, and also genuinely, they can be more surprising because you don't have solicits three months ahead of times, and you don't have people advertising the relaunch that spins out of it. Right. Yeah, that's that's true. That's a huge help. Stephen E. Chambers says, "Easy one. Have you two been keeping up with Rucka and Lark's Lazarus?" Nope. Also, nope. Although I have to admit that I. I, I again have a huge stack of the issues digitally. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I have a lot to catch up on, but I've not been keeping up yeah. with it. Yeah, so it's like I literally, I think, have digital versions of the first four trades or something, of which I really did read the first ten to twelve issues. I think pretty closely, and then started to wander off. I, I would like to come back to it, but. Uh, hopefully I just will. remember you were very disappointed in it. Am I misremembering that? No, no, no. It's. I think that's right. I thought. I think Lazarus is absolutely hands down one of the great um, ideas. I think. I really do think that it is. It's pretty phenomenal the way that it's put together and handled, and it's really and just. But the actual execution of it, Rucka stuff is just too slow for me. It's too, it's too goddamn draggy. There's problems with the, his character, his, the way his, how he approaches his characters. It's just, yeah, all my problems with Rucka really rose to the surface with Lazarus and I haven't, haven't been able to unsee them really. So, uh, Scott Rowland asks, I'm 100 episodes behind, so you may have covered, but any thoughts on Steve Ditko's independent work over the years and thoughts on Ditko's string of modest but successful Kickstarters to publish new material? I, I, thought, you were going, I thought you were going to go straight into something. I was, uh, but I, I figured I, I should I have, Yeah, I, I don't have thoughts on those things other than 
Uh, I really like that, that Ditko is able to make his Kickstarters work. Yes. Like I that, so that I find that really yeah. reassuring is not the right word, but it kind of makes me feel happy for, for Ditko, but also kind of for fandom. Mm-hmm. I'm like, good job, everyone involved in that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, as someone who's backed, uh, several of them, I am, I'm, I am a fan of those. Uh, Ditko's independent work, that having been said, having gotten the books, like, I think, honestly, the last one, which might have been the, I don't know if it's the most recent Kickstarter, but was like, you know, a new issue of Mr. A, and I was like, hooray! And then it got buried under a bunch of other stuff, and I, I haven't read it, and hopefully we'll get to it, but no guarantees. Uh, I find that Ditko, I, there's, I... I adore the fact that this is a dude who continues to use comics as his main way of thinking about the world and communicate, trying to communicate to the world. I love what he tries to do with the superhero paradigm. And I love the fact that he also is kind of still stuck in certain kind of I don't want to say ruts, but you know, his, his creative obsessions are still there. Like if you, you kind of had an idea, I think when he went from Marvel and then to Atlas, and then certainly by the time he gets to DC, it's like, Oh, he's got some definite fixations slash ideas about what's important and and how to express those things. And so seeing another book, you know, in which he's got, uh, uh, a character who's named after whatever he saw in his alphabet soup that morning. And that character is a news reporter who is also a, um, superhero. I, you know, I, that usually has some sort of weird, melty, marbly, splitty, juggly powers. I kind of, I dig, all, I dig all of that in in concept and I'm glad that he's doing it, but in reality I can make it, I made it through about two and a half of his Kickstarter comics and then went, yeah, I don't really necessarily think that it's going to go much more for me. Also, there's ways in which those, those comics in which it's like smiley face and angry face and they have a dialogue about things in the world. It's, it's, yeah, that's, that's not what you're looking for. It's, 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 I would prefer something maybe a little, that would skew a little closer to Alan Moore and a little less off the goofus and gallant. But, you know, that's just, <laughs> that's just. That's me. just you. Exactly. But I think Darth, it's awesome. Yeah. Darth Selfie asks, what long run title would you analyze all your backs to building apps if you weren't doing FF or gasp after you finish FF? This is First a good all, closing question. This should be our. our I, I don't think we'll ever. Oh, I know, right? Jesus. <laughs> um, I say that as someone who was catching up in Fantastic Four issues today for next week, and I was like, oh, God, <laughs> these issues might kill us. <laughs> oh, man, I haven't started yet. I haven't, and I'm sort of like, oh, I'm hoping to, that they'll be okay. So, yes. Um, well, there is gore to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, gore, the golden size changing gorilla. Yay! Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot that you and I there. have actually talked about doing Legion at one point. Did we? I I mean, we we we, we have both talked about doing Legion. It, me and a, I'm totally excited to do this, and you and a, I really don't know if I am. 
but I think it was it's something people would like. I think people would really like it. I mean, honestly, looking at the number of questions that we have here, right. I really did have that thing of like, oh, I yeah. Um, I, also, I would love to do Micronauts. Yeah, Micronauts, right? Like, part, part of me is like, man, Micronauts might be fun because it's such a short-ish run compared to the other stuff that we've done. Like, we could especially if, that if we only months. did, yeah, if we only did the Mantlo stuff, right? That's like sixty issues. Yeah, right. So that would be tempting. I see. This is my thing: is is all the stuff that I've brought up. Graham is generally poo-pooed, and also it's true. I'm a I'm a big Marvel nerd, and also thanks to GIT Core, the Marvel there's more of the Marvel it's, it's stuff. Su- it's super easy to get hold between yeah. Marvel Unlimited and the GIT Core. Yeah. it's super easy to get the Marvel stuff. Yeah, exactly. So and part it, of, it is not easy to get the DC stuff at all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I feel that there are ways in which. Yeah, I mean, so for me, I would I would dig a Spider-Man reread that I don't think that Graham has had any interest in. Yeah, and- I, I I ultimately would not because I uh, actually much like the FF. I think like I'd really enjoy the opening, and then we'd just get to a point where I'd be like, oh, this is not fun anymore. <laughs> could be, could be. I mean, I think that might be the case with most deep rereads. And also, it's you know, I think that. As Graham has pointed out, Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men, have the X-Men covered in a way that it would be sort of silly for anyone to to also tackle. And yet part of me is also kind of into the idea of it. Because honestly, I think that Chris Claremont is probably one of the more interesting writers to speculate about what was going through his head and and is still remains, I think, one of the most... Uh, influential creators in the field, weirdly enough, you know? No, I, I think that's completely true. And also, and again, I really do think Jane Miles have, have got this covered. Yeah. But uh, the idea of doing I, a Claremont, not just Claremont X-Men, but like Claremont everything, because he linked all his shit together. That's true. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. That's absolutely right. There's... Like, I'm seeing, because uh, characters appear, you know, even from Iron Fist will later on appear in, in things years down the line. Oh, yeah, completely. You know, see, yeah. seeing, seeing, and also Spider-Woman, from a Spider-Woman run show up in Wolverine years later. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it would be, it would be interesting to, if nothing else, try and put all that in something resembling a coherent timeline to reread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, I, I really do think Jane Miles have, have, have taken care of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely true. There, I, I apologize for using Rachel and Miles, the old ter, uh, name, instead of Jane Miles. It's, it's me not, uh, not, not keeping up with the, with the podcast generally, I'm afraid. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, so those, those but, would but, be my votes. But I also do think that actually a Legion one might be, might be a lot of fun. I mean, for the audience and and maybe also for us, I think. Because I have a much stronger appreciation for Silver Age DC. You know, I always did kind of have read enough of the Legion in the back of, you know, so that even though I'm not a hands-down expert, I could, I'm at least familiar with the premise and things. And it's clear, Graham, you have an incredible love of the material. So, yeah. I, yeah, stupidly. Um, 
I, I but honestly, I think the Baxter Building might kill us first. <laughs> oh man, no kidding, right? Oh boy. Uh, but this it. is a great place to pivot to the fact that next week's episode is a Baxter Building episode. That's right. Yes, uh, when we're we're doing issues one seventy through. We're going really up. We're going, aren't we going to like one eighty four or something like that? I, I'm going to have to look it up. You you were kind of like, yeah, let's get let's do this huge big jump because you were sort of like, what do you remember as being good? <laughs> well, so it's, it's I think really, it was, it's not only really that. It's it's that we like uh, Thomas doesn't give you a good jumping off point, right? Like they're they're really wrapped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it they really go into each other. Like if you don't stop after the Galactus arc. Yes. Then you're kind of screwed because, like, the next ten episodes and yeah. ten issues, like, are all one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Agreed. Let um, me see what if I said if I actually wrote down the show notes for us. I did one seven one through one eighty four. Yeah, one seven one through one eighty four. Join us then. It's gonna be only a week away, it's, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a bunch people. Yeah. Um, there's there's some lucky stuff in there. There really is. Uh, this is where I should a do the uh, the closing that mm-hmm. we traditionally do, but B, say that I guess after that, two weeks from now, we will really try and finish these questions. Yeah, I think we'll we'll be finished up then. I I can't believe that we didn't quite do it or this do, time. Around. Jeff, do you want to do what we did? Like, do you want to push out back to building again another week and do the questions next week? I, you know, maybe we should. Maybe we should. Was just try and get these oh, dumb questions done. Uh, you know, actually, I think I think I'm going to have to punt because I realize I made plans for my Sunday. What? Yeah, well, oh, I mean, Jeff. just assuming that you're, you would you're be thinking doing about your you're thinking about yourself before the listeners. Are you trying to have a life? I hate you so much right now, Grandma. <laughs> Okay, back to building next week. Then we'll finish the questions. Fingers crossed we'll finish the questions. Although, I have to say, there is nothing that actually makes me happier than knowing that we have yet again managed to make a Q&A episode last for a month. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's classic Wade Watch. It right really there. is, yeah. And that is the tradition. Oh man, we suck so bad. <laughs> What's amazing is that we suck so bad, and yet we are still a Patreon supported podcast. Yeah, no <laughs> thank you very much, everyone. Yeah, who's supporting us on Patreon, even though we suck so bad. Uh, it, there's no other way of putting it. Um, <laughs> Jeff, because I mentioned Patreon, this is the part where uh, you should get into your NPR voice, please. Oh yes, I should. We are incredibly grateful to all of our supporters on Patreon, without whom uh, none of this would be possible. Of course, most of the questions that came uh, from this episode and the previous episode are questions that uh, uh, we openly solicited from all those fine people. And uh, we should give a super big shout out to the kind crew at American Ninth Art Studios uh, for their continuing support of this podcast, as well as Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. Um, to whom we're super grateful, not just for her support, but for not destroying the very space-time network in which we exist. All hail. So You know, those those things happen occasionally. Just, yeah. Just a, a little bit of destruction. <laughs> uh, we are 
all over the internet. We're at waitwhatpodcasts.com, which is where you'll find show notes for each episode and written posts. Jeff and I actually did a written post this week, as did Matt Terrell. Isn't that amazing? We're yeah. getting back to the old routine. And I, fingers crossed, uh, will have the uh, my take on the July Rebirth books up this week as well, mm. with August ones really hopefully following next week. Mm-hmm. Again, Fingers across. We'll see how realistic that happens. But uh, definitely the July one is seven-eighths finished. So it should really be up in the next couple of days. Wow. Um, so yes, waitwhatpodcast.com is where you'll find us. Uh, we are also on Tumblr, waitwhatpods.tumblr.com, where you will find absolutely random comic images from myself and occasionally from Mr. Jeffrey Lester here. That's right. Uh, who is also on, is it the spinnerrack.tumblr.com or is it just spinnerrack? It's just spinnerrack, but I make it a point to cross post everything to wait what pod. So, you know, follow, follow spinnerrack as well. Just in case one day Jeffrey gets to, to, to <laughs> you, you don't even know what he might be doing. He, he might be like sub tumbling. Is that a thing? Can you, sub- you would think, you would think that you would sub- be a someone? thing, don't you think? So, but even if you can't sub Tumblr, you can subtweet, and we're on Twitter as well. So you can feel free to subtweet us there. We're at Wait What Podcast on Twitter. Uh, Jeff is at Lazy Bassett at L A Z Y B E S T I D. I am at Graham M at G R A E M E M. Matt Terrell, who is our esteemed uh, post writer. I don't know if there's a better title for him. There probably is. Uh, for the website is Jeff, Matt underscore Terrell. Is that mm-hmm. correct? M-A-T-T underscore T-E-R-L. That is correct. Uh, and that that's it. That's where you can find us. You can also find us on iTunes. You can find us on Stitcher. Please feel free to leave comments on posts because apparently the more comments you leave, the, the easier it is for people to find us. And that's hmm. very good. Who knows? Yeah, that, that, that's what I've been told. Um, yeah, that that's the bunch you have. You have a Baxter building this week. We will be talking about Fantastic Four issues that I think I've I've really prepared you guys for. I think you're all ready to read some. Yes. Oh my goodness. Stuff. Aren't we? Actually, there there's some Galactus in there. Yeah. Uh, there is. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for you, Jeff. The covers will spoil it for you if you look through on, on Marvel Unlimited. But um, there is the reappearance of a character who has not appeared since the first year of the comic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I remember. I remember. Uh, and also, we're getting into a bunch of issues I read when I was 10 years old <laughs> and I bought from a second-hand bookstore in my hometown. Wow. And I will regale all of you with my 10-year-old feelings on John Buscema art. Yay. Next week. See? That isn't a tease. What is? <laughs> Indeed, Graham. Now that you've teased us, do you wish to sing us out? Sure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening. Your patience, as ever, whether just in listening to us or waiting for us to get to your questions, is appreciated. The only other thing I can say is bye! Beautiful. Just beautiful. Beautiful.